Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Daniel. So I'll be reading this morning from the book of Daniel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. If you would stand with me of recognizing God's authority over our lives. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the king declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, 
all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you have the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence The hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. It's a privilege to get to preach this passage. Um, I haven't met you yet. My name is Scott. I serve as an elder here. Uh, Let me start by sharing a story. Um, When my twins, Ava and Jaden, were six years old, uh, they played on a park district soccer team that went undefeated through their whole season. Now, technically at that age, they don't keep score of the game, but every parent knows the score through the whole game. Uh, Most weeks, they won their games by a wide margin. A score like 8 to 2 or 12 to 4 were not uncommon for that team. But it really wasn't because they had a great team. They had Elliot on their team. And Elliot was head and shoulders better than anybody else on any field we stepped foot on all year long. If Elliot got the ball and he wanted to score, he would. At that age, soccer is mostly a a mosh pit of kids chasing the ball around the field, wherever it would go. But Elliot had older brothers who played soccer and let him play with them. And so they had taught him how to dribble and how to move around the field and get out and, and score. And he was fast. He was faster with the ball than anybody else in the field was without the ball. And so whenever he wanted to score, he, he just could. It really didn't seem fair. 
Now, my twins, Ava and Jaden, weren't as good as Elliot. I'm not going to say they were the worst players on the team, but they were competing for that title. Um, Ava, Ava never did this, but it wouldn't have surprised me if I had caught her playing with the dandelion uh, flower in, in the middle of a game. She was just not that excited about soccer, and, and neither was Jaden. But they were having fun chasing the ball around most of the time. Towards the end of the season, um, we asked Jaden who he thought the strongest players on his team were. It's really just kind of curious if he was aware of the makeup of the team. And he pretty quickly identified Elliot as being the best player on the team. And then he paused for a moment and he said, and then I think, um, and then he named another kid whose name I've forgotten, um, and, and I, like he and I are probably the next best players on the team. And I, I was, I did a good job, I didn't laugh, um, because he did name the second best player on the team, that was, that was correct, but so his assessment of other players was pretty accurate. He knew that Elliot was the best and this other kid was, was probably their next best. But then his ability to judge his own abilities was so far off of accurate that it was, it was comical. In a, in a six-year-old, that can be humorous and endearing. Um, but it's not just six-year-olds that aren't able to assess ourselves accurately. We all do that. We all think of ourselves usually way higher than we ought. If you were here with us for our sermon last week, there's a line that was repeated three times, and it came up again in our sermon this morning. And that repetition should be like a neon sign for us that the theme of last week's passage is carrying over into the theme of this week's passage. That sentence in our story today is found in verse 21. The most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God is sovereign. He rules over everyone and everything. He is truly in control. Now last week, Craig focused in on how the reality of God's sovereignty gives exiles like them and like us hope. We actually can have hope because there's a God who's in control. In chapter 4 and again in chapter 5 today, we see that one of the things that God's sovereignty ought to produce in humanity, in addition to that hope, is humility. Now that's logical when you think of it on the face of it. If God is really sovereign and mighty and in control, then it's not hard to come to the conclusion that we are not. But that awareness... And the resulting humility that comes from that awareness does not come very easily to us. It was a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar to learn. It took him seven years. And we will see that it's a lesson that Belshazzar never actually learns in our story today. 
The reality, though, is that it isn't just kings and rulers who struggle to learn the lesson of God's sovereignty. So this morning, we'll start by taking a look at Belshazzar, and then after that, we'll turn and look at ourselves, and then finally, we will finish by looking at God. And hopefully, in doing those three things, we will take a step forward in learning the lesson that could create the kind of humility that we ought to have as we stand before a sovereign God. Let me pray before I jump in. God, I'm pausing to pray right now because this lesson of your sovereignty and the resulting humility that it ought to produce in us is a hard lesson for us to learn. And I ask that you would reach in and work in our hearts in these next few minutes and do a work that only you can do. Be working to produce the appropriate humility in us in response to your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start by looking at Belshazzar, and what we see in the life of Belshazzar is that God's judgment falls on this self-exalting king. Quite a bit of time has passed since Daniel came to Babylon as a teenager. The fall of Babylon uh, to the Medes and Persians that we see at the end of this chapter happened 66 years, roughly, after Jerusalem had been conquered by Babylon back in chapter 1. So Daniel has lived an entire lifetime in Babylon. He worked through the entire administration of Nebuchadnezzar, and there's now a new Babylonian king in charge. That puts Daniel somewhere in his 80s. We'll just, we'll just say he's 85 for, for the sake of having a number. And as we'll see, this new king hasn't paid enough attention to the lessons of the recent past. Our story opens with a party. And that would probably make you think this is a happy time. This is people relaxed and telling jokes and having a good night. But by the time we get to the end of the story, we realize that something very different is going on here. There is an enemy army approaching the city. The king will be dead within hours. But instead of preparing for battle... The king is throwing a party for a thousand of his closest friends. This is a weird scene. And in this scene, the king is enjoying his fine wine with his guests. And he gets an idea. What would make this party even better? Let's let's drink a toast to our gods with this fine wine that we have. To do it from these glasses we have now wouldn't be good enough. Let's, let's go get out of storage the gold and silver vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. That's a good idea. Let's put some of this fine wine in that and then drink a toast to our gods. There's a lot going on here. What are these gold and silver vessels? We're not giving additional details here of what specifically they were, but they are vessels that could hold wine, so think of some sort of a bowl or goblet, that were made originally out of silver and gold for use in the temple. And these are things 
that Nebuchadnezzar the king had taken as spoils of war. Some of those spoils of war are described in 2 Kings chapter 25. And there it specifically mentions that they were gold and silver sprinkling bowls that were taken. Maybe those are the specific bowls that they were using. Whatever they were, they were designed and intended to be used in the process of worshiping God in the temple of Jerusalem. They'd never been used for anything else. They were set apart and specifically laid aside for this one special use, for use in worshiping God. The Bible has a term for things that are set apart like this, and that word is holy. Something that's holy has been set apart, laid aside for for very specific, purposeful, consecrated uses. These were holy vessels. They were not common vessels, and they were intended to be only used in the worship of God. And over the last couple of days, I've been trying to think of anything in our culture that would even give us a hint of what it means to have something set aside like that. And to be really honest, I couldn't come up with an example that I thought even touched it. The, the best thing I could come up with is to think of how um, a, an art aficionado would feel to hear that someone had broken into the Louvre and finger-painted over all of the best paintings. Like, there's a revulsion to that. That we go, oh my gosh, no! Those are precious. Add on top of that and multiply it by a million. (laughs) These aren't just pretty works of art that we appreciate. These are holy things set aside to worship God. I'd love to be able to say that Belshazzar didn't know what he was doing, but the text doesn't leave us that option. He's not ignorant of what these objects are. There's two different things in the passage that make that clear. The known value and preciousness of these objects is clear by the fact that they've been saved for 60 plus years, and they're still easily accessible in the king's palace. Belshazzar knows about them. He knows where they came from. He knows how they got them. He knows their history. All of that demonstrates that he knows these things to be precious, and yet he chooses to do this profane thing with them. The second reason we know that he's not just doing this in ignorance is that Daniel points out in his confrontation with Belshazzar, Belshazzar that Belshazzar knew the story of the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar's encounters with the living God. He knew about the seven years in the field. And he knew that these objects had come from that temple. These weren't just objects from some random foreign false god. But he had been taught about who this God was because he knew the story and he chose to ignore it. Well, what does Belshazzar do? He gets these holy objects, he fills them with his booze, he passes them around his party, and on top of that, they do it in an act of praise toward their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Wow. Talk about 
blasphemous. They actually used the vessels from the temple to worship their idols. What does this tell us about the heart of Belshazzar? By taking and drinking from these holy vessels, Belshazzar is showing that he thinks that he and his purposes are greater than the holy purposes that those objects were intended for. And both Daniel's response and God's response verify that Belshazzar's acts are serious acts and rooted deeply in his pride. Daniel, in his response to Belshazzar, says this. He says, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew about all of these things. He says, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Daniel knows that there's pride at the heart of all of this. And God's response to Belshazzar is swift and clear. A disembodied hand literally shows up in their party room and writes judgment on the wall. This is a crazy scene. And Belshazzar loses it. It says the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. This is like every cartoon fear reaction all put into a sentence, right? His limbs gave way. I think he faints. His knees are knocking. I mean, that's like comedy show kind of level fear. So he gathers his advisors, and as we have seen over and over again, they don't know what to do. The queen suggests getting Daniel. And this scene with Daniel showing in has so much irony to it. Here you have this petrified king, scared out of his mind, who's literally hours away from death, offering to Daniel power and rewards to tell him that he is doomed. And Daniel is this 85-year-old, calm, collected, self-assured man standing in front of this king who's at the end of his life. It's no wonder that Daniel says, you can keep your rewards. I I don't need your rewards. And God's judgment that he wrote on the wall is that the king's reign is over. God has numbered the days of his kingdom and brought them to an end. The enemy is at the gate and Belshazzar is executed that very night as the army of Darius enters the city and the once mighty empire of Babylon it comes to an end on that very night. Back in Daniel 2, if you remember the vision, dream of the statue with the gold head and kind of going down through these different materials. We talked about how each kingdom was going to replace the one before it. This is the end of the Babylonian kingdom. So that's taking a look at Belshazzar. Let's take a look at ourselves, because we too are self-exalting like Belshazzar. We're not kings, we're not rulers, but we are still full of pride. Pride can be tricky, because it shows itself in so many different ways. 
I'm going to give a little bit of detail in a few different ways that it might show up. The first one I want to talk about is self-promotion. For some of us, pride shows up in a boasting arrogance. Look at me. Look at how great I am. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar did in our last chapter. Remember what he said? Is this not Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's about as good an example of boasting arrogance as you could come up with. He mistakenly thought that he was the source of all the greatness and majesty of the Babylonian palace that he was at and the empire that he ruled. And so he boasted and he bragged and he sought to make much of himself. And we see that same thing in ourselves. We want people to see our accomplishments. We want people to make much of us. We find ways to bring up our successes. We put our achievements on display. I'm not saying that we can never share the good things that are happening in our lives. But we have to be really suspicious about our motives when we do that. Is this to draw attention to myself? To build myself up? Is this self-promotion and self-exaltation? Or I can share those things in a way of pointing to God's provision in my life and his kindness to me. So I'm not saying every time we talk about something good in our life, it's self-promotion and self-exaltation, but it often is. A second way it shows up is self-centeredness. In our story today, Belshazzar doesn't brag about his accomplishments. He just behaves consistently with his belief that he is the most important person in the world and that everything revolves around him. We do that too. We so often live our lives like everything revolves around us. If you've had young kids in your home, you've seen it in really obvious ways. Mine! Right? We're we're more sophisticated than that. We don't usually quite do it that way. In conversations, we relate every story back to ourselves and draw the attention back on us. When we're in a conversation and it feels one-sided, like we're asking all the questions and they never ask us questions back, we feel hurt. I, I wanted to talk about myself. We get jealous at other people's successes. Every time we try to make our marriages or our friendships about meeting my needs, that's our self-centeredness showing up. We can be, even be self-centered in the way that we relate to church. Our involvement in church is about more than meeting our spiritual needs. It should do that, but it should also be an avenue for us to serve the body and display Christ to the people around us. Another way that pride shows itself in us is self-sufficiency. I was actually trained to do this, right? I think all of us are to a certain extent. My parents started it, then my teachers picked up the mantra, my coaches reinforced it, 
Our society practically screams it at us. If you work hard enough, you can achieve whatever you set your mind to do. Along the way, I believed them. And I saw success at things, and that reinforced what they had been trying to tell me. And eventually, it stopped being this externally driven thing to being an internal thing. And I really bought it. What it boils down to is, I think I can. But, as is true in all forms of pride, a life of self-sufficiency really is the antithesis of the Christian life. The Christian life is, by definition, a life of dependence. When someone comes to Christ, including me, we've admitted that we're unable to live up to God's standard. We admit that we're insufficient. And becoming a Christian means depending on the worthiness of Christ to stand before God instead of depending on my own worthiness. I am inadequate and insufficient. But that humbling decision not only marks the moment of us becoming a Christian, it's also the key to living the Christian life for the rest of our days. But if you're anything like me, there is an ongoing battle to continue to believe this rightly. My default is to start depending upon myself instead of on the Lord. Not just in everyday matters, but even in spiritual things. And when I start doing that, I spend less time in the Word. I spend less time praying. I start trying to develop virtues on my own disciplines. And I end up hurting people. I've given some details on three of the ways that pride manifests itself in us. Self-promotion, self-centeredness, and self-sufficiency. There's a much longer list of ways that pride can show itself in us. Being unteachable. Anger and jealousy. Perfectionism. Control. Defensiveness and blame shifting. Hiding your own faults and finding faults in others. Impatience. Isolation. Self-deprecation. An intense need to be right. Being hyper-competitive. And we, we could get a really long list going. And there are certainly other th- reasons that some of these things might show themselves beyond just pride. But pride can feed into every one of those things and so many more. Why is pride such a problem, though? Why is it such a big deal to God? Because at its root, pride is us taking the glory that's due to God and trying to attribute it to ourselves. It's placing ourselves above God. And we do not belong there. We've looked at King Belshazzar and we've seen his pride. We've looked at ourselves and we've seen that same pride. I want to take the remainder of my time to address the solution to our pride. And that's by looking at our true king. I alluded to this a moment ago, but part of the reason why our pride is so problematic is because there actually is one 
who deserves that kind of exaltation that we try to give to ourselves. God is actually worthy of our admiration, our respect. He is worth all of our worship. God's sovereignty as it's presented to us in these stories is intertwined with all of his other attributes. When I think of his sovereignty, it's really hard to not think kind of more specifically about his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he's everywhere. God was sovereign in the days of the Babylonian Empire. and He is still sovereign today. Instead of trying to promote ourselves, we ought to be promoting him. Instead of centering our lives on ourselves, we ought to be centering our lives on him. Instead of trusting ourselves and our abilities, we ought to be trusting him. And like he was in Daniel's day, God is still the most high. He still rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now, we don't live in an age of kings and kingdoms, so I'm going to put that in a slightly different way for us and make it hopefully more practical or more tangible. God rules over COVID and every other disease that ravages human bodies. God rules over Russia and Afghanistan and Myanmar and Yemen and every other armed conflict going on right now on our planet. God rules over the rich and the poor and everyone in between. God rules over the most educated and the least educated. He rules over all. And what do I mean when I say he rules over I mean that he is the king, and no one has authority over him. He is sovereign over. We're not talking about a democracy where he gathers votes and then makes a decision. He rules. I I am invited, and and he wants me to pray and to tell him what I think. He, He longs for that. But God's not like tallying up my opinions and then going, oh, well, enough people want that, so that's what we'll do. He does as he sees fit. I pray all the time for things that God doesn't end up doing. But that's because my perspective is so limited. God in his omniscience sees every contingency and actually knows what the best thing to do is. And so that's what he does. I don't see all of those things. So I pray what seems best to me. And that's not wrong. That's what I'm supposed to do. But as I pray, in my heart, I have to see his omniscience. I have to see my limitedness. And God doesn't need me to state this every time I pray, but the attitude of my heart should always hover in this state of not my will but yours be done. I am not God. And the right response to recognizing the reality that God is God and that I am not is that I would be humbled. I would keep God as God and not try to put myself in his place. 
That's the first way that I think that looking at God and his sovereignty should humble us. The second is going to get more specific to looking at Jesus. Describing Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the highly exalted one, the Lord, he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He became a man and he lived a human existence. Not even a privileged one. He came as a servant and he went to the cross. And it's by his supernatural life that we are transformed. It's no longer just my life, but Christ lives his life in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been crucified with Christ. The humility of Christ can be expressed through our lives, not because we can muster up enough humility to do it, but because Christ is living a humble life through us. His life through us actually transforms us and brings his humility out of us. We can fall on him as our rescuer. We can't, but he can. Who can rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our only hope. At the end of Daniel 5, Belshazzar, this Gentile king, places a purple robe on Daniel. He puts a gold necklace around his neck. But it means nothing. Because he has no real authority to do so, and he is about to die. But we serve a king who had a purple cloak placed on his shoulders and a crown of thorns placed on his head by a group of Gentile soldiers. They too had no authority to do so. But Jesus, who had all the authority in the universe, received those tokens, though they were intended for mockery, His death and his resurrection would prove their truthfulness and his worthiness to receive them. And unlike Belshazzar and every other human king that has ever existed, Jesus rules a kingdom that will never end. He has been weighed in the balance and found utterly sufficient. And his kingdom will never be taken from him, and it will never be divided. He is worthy of being submitted to. He's worthy of humbling yourself before 
He is worthy of your worship. Submit yourself to our sovereign King. Jesus, thank you so much for what you did. You didn't have to come for us. But you humbled yourself. And God, we long to live out your humility. Empower us by your Spirit to live your life demonstrating you through our actions. Grow within us that kind of humility. In Jesus' name, amen.